Well, at this stage in history, it's estimated that we've worshipped somewhere approximating 11,000 gods. And those are just the gods that we've given names, the gods that have religions attached. Many people worship gods that don't have names, the gods of money, the gods of sexual pleasure, the gods of alcohol and power and whatever else might capture heart affections. I remember an African pastor saying to me once, you know, John, in your culture, you worship a God that's on your wrist, the God of schedules, the God of time, the God that captures your obsessions, your longings. And you may be here and say, well, well, I'm an atheist. I don't worship any gods, which just means you probably worship yourself or gods you refuse to see because all of us worship someone, something. It's as human as breathing. If you breathe, you worship. Exodus 20, verse 3, the Lord commands His people, you shall have no other gods before me, which literally means no other gods in my face, no other gods in my presence, no other affections above me, no other devotions besides me, no worship, no glory given to anyone or anything else. And so, I want to begin with this question this morning for us, who is your Lord and God? Whom do you worship? And is it the God of the Bible? Or is it some other God? What other gods do you bring into His presence? So I think the ministry of Elijah is going to force these kinds of questions onto our minds, these kinds of questions upon our hearts. That Elijah, his name means, my God is Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Scripture, the one and only, that He is the maker of heaven and earth. Ephesians 3.15, from Him every family in heaven and on earth is named, and He made everyone, everything. He sends rain in its season, He withholds it. He supplies food, He takes it away. He gives life, He removes it, always righteously always justly, always perfectly. In Him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, 28. The Lord alone is God. So to worship anyone other than Him, to give devotion or glory to anyone other than Him, deserves everlasting death. It's one of the real points of the Bible. And another point is, we're all guilty of it, all guilty of defecting, all guilty of giving glory to other things, created things. So what are we to do? I think this is where the ministry of Elijah can help us, the ministry of all the prophets can help us, that we can actually listen to the Word of the Lord through Elijah. We can go where He leads, where He points. We can believe what God promises to us through His ministry. We can find salvation at the end of whatever line He's taking us down. Elijah prophesied during the reign of Ahab. You may know about Ahab, the wicked king of Israel who reigned about 60 years after the kingdom of Israel split into north and south. 
So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, the capital of Jerusalem. And 60 years after that split, Ahab is going to come to power in the north. And listen to what 1 Kings 16, 30 through 33, has to say about him. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So he's saying, as if it wasn't enough for him to worship the calves of gold that Jeroboam had cast and set up in Israel to worship, Ahab is also going to take Jezebel, this princess of a Sidonian king, as his wife. And Jezebel loved to worship Baal, loved to worship Asherah, loved to kill even the true prophets of the Lord, loved to lead her husband and even the covenant people of God into all kinds of gross idolatry and immorality. Well, Ahab embraced her, worshipped Baal, then built a house to Baal in the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria, the capital of Israel at the time. So he led Israel into all kinds of sin against the Lord by worshiping all kinds of other gods and bringing them into the land, into the presence of the one true God. Well, the Lord's going to send Elijah as a response, and He's going to start by making this main point, which is our main point for this morning, that the Lord alone is God, our only source of physical and spiritual bread. Elijah's just going to come out of nowhere. We don't get any lead up to him, don't get any background. Chapter 17, verse 1, he's just going to show up and announce famine, announce drought. To make this point, the Lord alone is God, our only source of physical and spiritual bread. This is what we need to remember each and every day. The simple truth that He alone feeds us physically, but that He alone, more importantly, feeds us spiritually. And He can take it all away like that. We need to remember that. It's one reason why we have the Lord's Supper. We realize that, okay, we, we live by, not by physical bread, but by spiritual bread. Chapter 17, verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He's going to show up and announce God's going to shut up the heavens. He's not going to give rain anymore. There's going to be drought. There's going to be famine. He's going to do that in fulfillment of what God already said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy He would do. This is Leviticus 26, verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. And if you won't do those things, he says, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, the trees of the field shall yield its fruit. And if you don't do that, I'll take all that away. So the Lord is being faithful 
to His Word. That Baal, even, this false god of the Sidonians, was called in their language the Lord of rain and dew. That was His name, one of His names. So when the Lord says, there will be no rain, no dew on the earth except by My Word, He's making a clear statement. Your God, Baal, is a lie. Your God, Baal, is, is false. He's not real. He's not alive. He's not the God of rain or dew. That's why Elijah says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. No other God lives. Elijah says, before whom I stand, He's a person that I represent and speak for. No other God. Verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him, meaning to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. So this prophet, who is now rejected by his own people, is going to go into the wilderness east of the Jordan like reversing the conquest of the land. He's going east after they'd come in west. And he's going to suffer as a result of the sins of his people because God's people aren't immune to the consequences of the sins of a culture or his judgment upon a culture or a surrounding people. So he's going to suffer. But he's also going to leave as a statement to everyone that this famine that God is sending is not just a famine of physical bread. This is a famine of spiritual bread. It's meant to see that when Elijah leaves, the word of the Lord leaves. Amos 8.11 actually warns of this. He says, there's a day that's coming when there will be a famine on the land, but not for food, but for my word. People will go from sea to sea in search of it, but they will not find it. We're meant to see that's the worst conceivable judgment upon a group of people. The worst imaginable judgment upon this nation is for God to say, I just won't speak to you. I won't give you my word. So his word is left with the prophet. Even as I was reading this, I had to ask, you know, if, if the word of the Lord were to leave me, if the spirit were to leave me, though he can't, but if he did, would I notice? Would it bother me? Even think about, it, are you bothered by the idea of God withholding his word from you? Are you bothered by not having access to the Word of the Lord? I think these people aren't real bothered. So Elijah is going to go into the wilderness where the Lord in His particular love will still provide for him. What's interesting is God's going to provide for him, but probably not in a way that Elijah would have preferred. Namely, God's going to feed Elijah with ravens which according to the Mosaic law were unclean birds. So Elijah, leave the land, go to the wilderness, I'm going to feed you with unclean birds. How humbling. What a statement about, number one, the condition of the nation. But I think more importantly, just the providence of God. I can use anything, command anything to feed you, to provide for you. And sure enough, verse 6, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And so he's going to use birds to feed Elijah. That's just how powerfully 
and providentially, the Lord commands His creation. He says, I feed the birds, and I'm going to use birds to feed you. That as He supplied bread and meat morning and evening for the whole nation of Israel in the wilderness when He brought them out of Egypt. So here again is going to provide for His prophet. And to the Lord, it's just a small thing. It's not hard. One thing he's trying to show Elijah early in Elijah's ministry is that the Lord is his only provider. The Lord's his only hope. That there may be famine in the land, there may be drought in the land, there may be all kinds of trouble, but I will take care of you. It's always a message that he gives to his people that no matter what he's doing in bringing judgment on the land, on the culture, on all those who worship idols and reject Yahweh, he knows those who are his. He knows how to care for them. He'll even use unclean birds to do it. Because you would even think that the birds would only be concerned with feeding themselves, right? With keeping the food, with storing it. Or see, when the Lord commands birds to do something, they do it. They trust their Maker. And if they can trust their Maker, how much more should we trust our Maker? If the birds rely on God who are not made in His image, who are not His children, and they trust that He will provide for them, how much more should we have faith as His children, as those in His image, that He will care for us? And that's what He's asking Elijah to do. Trust me. Go to the wilderness. There's not going to be food, not going to be water, but I'm going to take care of you there. He provides for him every day. And now one would think that the Lord would just keep doing this, right? Okay, we've got a few more years to go on this drought thing, a few more years of famine. This bird thing is actually working out. Food, meat, all that every day, water. Can we just keep doing that? But no. No. And not just because God can't, but because there's actually more points He's intending to make. There's even a stronger statement He wants to make, which leads to verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Notice the similar language, verse 4. Here in verse 9, as the Lord commanded the ravens to feed Elijah, now He's commanding a widow, a Gentile, outside the land. Again, He is the Lord of food, of famine, of ravens, of widows, of everything else. So He arose and went to Zarephath, and when He came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And He called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So Elijah's going to obey the word of the Lord. And going to Zarephath, which happens to be in the land of Sidon. And again, you just notice again just the providence of God. I've commanded a widow, and when he gets to the city, he doesn't have to look around for her. She's already there at the gate. God's already provided it. I mean, the Lord knows those who are his before they know they are his. He set all this up. 
And again, you think of how humbling this would be for Elijah. Leave your land, go to the wilderness, I'll feed you with wolves. Okay, now the wilderness, go to Sidon, I'll feed you with a Gentile widow. And yet he obeys, he trusts, he follows. And not only a widow, but a poor and helpless widow. She's not rich, she's impoverished, she's not strong, she's weak. As the people of Sidon are under the same judgment, under the same drought, under the same famine, for their same worship of the same false god, Baal. And yet, here in this foreign land, among this idolatrous people, under the judgment of God, there's a widow that the Lord has set apart. Both, number one, to feed Elijah physically, but also to receive from Elijah spiritually. Notice what she says to Elijah, as the Lord your God lives. So we don't know what she does or doesn't believe about this God, Yahweh. Certainly not her God yet. She connects him to this prophet. This Lord your God, she senses the need for mercy, senses the need for help, but can't imagine where it would come from. For her, this is it. We're going to die. This is our last meal. Famine brings her to a place of total despair. The Lord, your God may live, Elijah, but we're about to die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. You want to go after what? After I've baked it, given it to you, and you've eaten it? Not going to be anything left. Unless verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. Think about that. This last bit of flour and oil, she bakes it into a cake and brings it to Elijah, not knowing, okay, is this really going to happen? Feeds it to the prophet, just completely trusting in the word of the Lord through this man. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. She's going to announce, okay, I'm going to go make this so that my son and I can eat and we can die. And Elijah says, do not fear. It's the first words out of his mouth. You have to hear that and go, okay, is he crazy? Did he hear anything that she just said? Does he realize at all what's happening? She and her son are about to die. And he says, don't fear. Don't worry. Really? Well, yes. Because when the Lord says, don't fear, he really means, don't fear. I'll take care of you. I'll help you. Do as I've called you to do. I will preserve you. First, make a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward, make something for yourself and your son. So not only don't fear, but what little you have, just bring it to me. You want to go, okay, does he hate widows? Does Elijah just hate orphans? Does God not care? Or is this him inviting this woman to trust in the word of the Lord? To give up everything she has to live on in submission to, in humility beneath, in trusting in this God 
speaking through this prophet. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, which is the only reason she should listen to anything he has to say. The word Elijah speaks is from Yahweh, the one who made everything out of nothing. The one who made everything out of nothing is saying to you, don't fear what you have, give it to me, I'll take care of you. And so she trusts, and Yahweh provides. The flour, the oil, they never run out until rain comes on the land. The Lord just keeps miraculously providing bread. I think the lesson is you could be tucked in some obscure corner of the world, in some little village that nobody knows about, about to die with no hope left in the universe, and God finds you, and God sends His Word to you, and God provides for you. And God loves you and cares for you and saves you. And there's actually something really gloriously ironic about this. Because you notice the Lord sends Elijah to a widow in Sidon. And through Elijah is going to provide her with spiritual bread. As through her, he provides physical bread. And through this whole thing is drawing her near to faith in this redeeming God of Israel. And she's going to believe the Word. She's going to receive it. Her trust and faith is going to be in this God, Yahweh, who is Elijah's God, is now is going to be her God. But as you recall, Jezebel, the wicked wife of King Ahab, who brings idolatry and false worship and corruption into Israel, is the princess of the king of Sidon. So this is actually Jezebel's land, where she is actually a princess. So while Jezebel, the Sidonian princess, brings idolatry to Israel... The Lord sends Elijah to bring the gospel to a Sidonian widow. The Sidonians are going to offer false gods and famine to Israel, but the Lord's going to offer true gospel and real food to a widow in Sidon. And the Lord knows those who are His because He chooses them to be His. He can find them anywhere and provide for them by whatever means He decides. And here we see Him providing, miraculously feeding His people in the midst of famine. A Jewish prophet and a Gentile widow. And this is not coincidental. This has been what God has done since redeeming His people from Egypt. This has been what God will continue to do, and most importantly, this is what God is foreshadowing that He will do in days to come. Through the prophet Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, centuries after Elijah lived on the earth, listen to what the Lord says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So this is centuries after Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Scripture will later explain that this new Elijah is John the Baptist. Listen to what Luke 1 says John the Baptist. And he will turn, John, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And that's the ministry of the prophets. That was the ministry of Elijah to prepare people, to make a way for the Lord with those whom the Lord has prepared to receive him. 
So John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, which means in the same spirit of the same God, enabled by the same spirit that Elijah was enabled by. Kind of the culmination of all Old Testament prophetic ministry of which Elijah is sort of the representative. So all the words and works of the prophets had been gathering momentum, sort of like this tidal wave approaching the shore, and then that tidal wave is going to crest on John the Baptist and then crash right at the feet of Jesus Christ. That Elijah is going to see what's coming from a distance. John the Baptist is going to touch it. So Elijah saw the coming Messiah from a distance. John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, is going to see him up close. Elijah foreshadowed this Messiah that is coming through his ministry. But it was veiled until Jesus appeared. John announced that unveiling. One that Elijah saw from a distance, John the Baptist touched, baptized, pointed to, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Elijah and then John called people to repentance and faith in the word of the Lord. And that word was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. So we're going to see that as Jesus' ministry actually unfolds. You get Elijah, all the prophets, like a tidal wave, sort of culminating, cresting at John the Baptist, who's now going to crash at the feet of Jesus and say, here he is, the one that we've all been preparing you for, the one who's come from heaven that all the bread and stuff we've been doing is just a picture of, a taste of. Listen to Jesus in Luke 4, verse 24, where he's actually sort of saying that what happened to Elijah is really what's happening to me. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So Elijah was not welcome in Israel, Jesus is saying, and nor am I. In Israel, they wanted Elijah dead. Jesus is saying, and you're going to want me dead. God sends Elijah to the Gentiles, not simply for his safety, but to bring the word of the Lord to a Sidonian widow. And to give a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, whose ministry will actually follow the same pattern. Whose rejection by Israel will lead to his crucifixion, to his burial, to his resurrection. And through that, salvation to both Jew and Gentile. In fact, listen to the response of those in his hometown when he brings up the story of Elijah and the widow. Verse 28 of Luke 4 when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So they were incensed at this idea that their rejection would lead to God sending his Savior and Redeemer to the Gentiles for their salvation. So angry by it, they want to kill him. And when this happens in Luke 4, what Jesus is saying is this isn't new. 
This has been happening for a long time. This is what happened to Elijah. This is what happened to all the prophets that I've sent to my people who were rejected. And through that rejection, I'm going to send my salvation to the world. The nation did it to Elijah, now they do it to Jesus. And why? Well, because they do not understand what God feeding a Sidonian widow through Elijah was really about. They never grasped the point that the Lord was making. It's not about physical bread. It's not about an ethnic kingdom. It's not about genetic heritage. But heart of repentance that receives the word of the Lord by faith and trusts in His provision of salvation through His Savior. The physical bread points to something else and someone else. And God had already done this with His own people in the wilderness and bringing them out of Egypt. Remember when He fed them for 40 years with manna from heaven? Then in Deuteronomy 8, He's going to explain what He was doing. He says to them, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with the manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's saying it was never about the physical bread. It's just an illustration. It's to make a point. I'm going to feed you physically, yes, but so that you know you don't live by physical bread alone. You live by my word. And then Matthew 14, Jesus, after a long day of ministry with his disciples, is there with a whole crowd of people. And the disciples are going to say, hey, Jesus, send them away so they can go get bread. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they reply to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. To which Jesus says, well, bring them here to me. Sound familiar? What little you have, turn it over. Give it to me first. And Jesus is going to take that bread and miraculously feed 5,000 men and their families, all from Israel. And again, the point was not to fill their bellies but to help them hear and to see and to believe and to realize that He is the Christ, their God, their Redeemer, their Savior, the one who's actually come to offer them salvation from all their idolatry, all their false worship, all their defection, that He's now come to His people with forgiveness. John 6.35, Jesus will say after the feeding of the 5,000, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. John 6.48, I am the bread of life so that one may eat of it and not die. John 6.53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And Israel could not handle that truth. They hear it and they go, okay, that's disgusting. That's, that's a hard saying. And they all leave. But then right after that, according to Matthew 15, amazingly, Jesus is going to journey to the land of Sidon. And there he's going to encounter a Canaanite woman and beg him to heal her daughter who's afflicted. 
Jesus is going to say to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not right to take the food that was meant for Israel. He's their Messiah and feed it to Gentiles and Sidon. To which she replies, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And the Lord commends her faith and heals her daughter, basically saying she gets the point. Then after healing many there on that day, lo and behold, he's going to feed the 4,000, almost entirely Gentiles, all from around the land of Sidon. We're going to see the connection and how Elijah is, is pointing right through John the Baptist, right to this person. That when Jesus showed up feeding the people of Israel in Matthew 14, then feeding a multitude of Gentiles in Matthew 15, we're supposed to look and see and hear and go, okay, He is the bread from heaven. He is the reason that bread exists. He is the reason that God gives food and takes it away. If He gives famine, it's to give us some sense of our spiritual need for Him. If He gives food, it's to give us some sense of how He provides for us through Jesus Christ. And to see Jesus and how Elijah has prepared us for Him all along and recognize, okay, this is the one that the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. This is the one as John the Baptist came, the spirit and power of Elijah that he pointed to so that we would look to Jesus, that we would repent of our sin and trust in Him, that we would put aside every other kind of worship and worship only Him, that we would trust in His body and His blood for the forgiveness of our sins and not go after other gods, that we would throw away all kinds of self-righteousness, all dependence on ourselves to make our way to God and come only through Him. But the physical hunger, he's saying, was always meant to give us a sense of spiritual hunger. And physical food was always meant to point us to our need for spiritual food, for Jesus who's come down from heaven. I think that's what this passage in 1 Kings 17 leads us to, to show us the absolute desperation of the human condition apart from the grace of God, to show us how quickly it can all just be taken away, to show us how much we depend upon God for everything, to call us from false dependences and hopes and and all these other created things so that we would forsake every other kind of God, every other way to God, And look only to His provision of bread, not just physical bread, but spiritual bread through Jesus Christ. That those who aren't in Christ would trust in Christ. That those who trust in Christ would trust more in Christ. So what gets in the way? Here's where I want to close with sort of four obstacles, four reasons why we could do what Israel did and just miss the point. And not see, I think, what Elijah, what God wants through Elijah to help us see and understand. Four obstacles today that get in the way of really depending on Him, really trusting in Christ day after day. The first we'll call the insulation obstacle. We're so far from the production of food, we're insulated from it, that we take food for granted. 
We live in a wealthy society, so we don't feel the vulnerability of natural resources that this Sidonian widow felt. She's like, okay, I'm going to go make this last meal, and then we die. We just don't feel that very much. We're insulated from it. We turn on the faucet, out comes water. So we forget how quickly famine comes. And for that reason, we forget how devastating it can be. For that reason, we forget how quickly judgment comes, how devastating it will be. Listen to Matthew 24. This is Jesus saying, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just eating, drinking, marrying, going to job, going home from your job, going to bed, getting up from bed, eating our meals, going through the motions, just insulated from how hard it hits, how fast it hits. Well, I think First Kings 17 is meant to just sort of cut through that obstacle and help us see, no, this is, this is real. Or secondly, the attribution obstacle, namely attributing our food, our water, our shelter to a healthy economy, to a certain government, to a certain technology, to an advanced society rather than to the Lord. So maybe we're not so bold as to attribute it to Baal or Asherah or some other false god, but we failed to attribute it entirely and utterly to Christ. It feels like we're working really hard for the bread. We're working, we're working really hard to get the education, to get the job, to put food on the table. So it's really tempting to misattribute where it all comes from. Daniel 5, 23, where through Daniel, God's going to confront a Babylonian king. He says, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. I think 1 Kings 17 just cuts right through that. So, okay, we're meant to honor the God who can, can just shut up the sky where it doesn't rain, bring drought, bring famine, who can feed you with a raven, who can feed you with a widow, who can provide for you in the wilderness, who loves you enough to send His only begotten Son to live and to die for your sins, to die in your place, to be raised for your salvation. Then we trust Him, we have faith in Him, and then we sort of keep living life and slowly forget. Or thirdly, the distraction obstacle, where we use physical things not to point us to serious sobering, essential spiritual realities, but to avoid them. We use food to provide comfort. We run to physical stuff as refuge, rather than seeing the food as a sign that points us to the God of comfort, to the only one that satisfies. We use created things for mindless escape, rather than just as little temporary tastes for the enjoyment of Christ, for the love of Christ. 
We'll numb ourselves, pleasure ourselves with pornography, with drugs, with drunkenness, with just laughing ourselves silly all the way until Christ shows up and all appear before His judgment seat where there's no laughing, no silliness there, where every fog of distraction is blown away by just the terror of the holiness of God. I think 1 Kings 17 can sort of just blow that fog away now and help us see and feel our need for God every day, our need for Christ every day, our need for the Word of the Lord and bread from heaven each and every day so that we don't get foggy in the distractions and in the worries of life. Or fourthly, just the survival obstacle where we reduce life to just getting physical bread and water and not dying. Failing to grasp that the physical famine is just a mere picture of spiritual famine, that the physical bread points to spiritual bread, to Jesus Christ, to His Word. Because we can eat physical bread, drink physical water every day, and we will still physically die. It has been appointed for each of us to die once. And after this comes judgment. Where apart from Christ, we would suffer another greater death, a second death, except a death that just keeps going forever. That's why we eat the bread of Jesus Christ, trust in His body sacrificed and His blood spilled on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And though someday we'll physically die, someday the bread and the water won't be able to sustain this body where the Lord is appointed, we will go into the grave you will be raised. You will be given a new glorified body because you will be raised with Christ in the presence of Christ forever. I think that's why now as we look back through Jesus, through John the Baptist to Elijah, we say, okay, that's what Elijah was pointing to. That's what Elijah wanted us to see. That's what Elijah sort of saw or sensed coming. That's how the Lord's going to use these kinds of stories like Elijah and the Sidonian widow to lead us to Christ, to show us that no other gods can do that for you, resurrect you, forgive you, give you eternal life, feed you spiritually. No other gods can feed you physically, let alone spiritually, rescue you physically, let alone spiritually. No other gods can give you grace or life or hope in this present life, let alone in the life to come. The Lord alone is God, Christ alone Redeemer. And the Lord's using Elijah to help us see it, believe it, to remember it always, that you were that Sidonian widow, starving to death, on the brink, in some obscure place, and the Lord found you. The Lord used all kinds of means to get His Word to you, to open up your eyes and heart to that Word, to believe it, to trust it, to give yourself entirely to Him. And He's saved you. He's forgiven you. He's filled you. He's protecting you. And He will do it to the very end. And now we look back on Elijah to help us remember, to help us celebrate, to help us abide 
in Him, to not be dragged away after other empty, false hopes, and to do that until the day when Christ appears. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we rejoice, not just that this story is here, but that this story is true. You really did do it. You really did send Elijah into the wilderness, fed him with ravens, sent him to a Sonian widow, fed him through her and her through him. And all this pointing to Jesus, the bread from heaven, who's come, and you brought that bread to us. You've, by your Spirit, opened our hearts to believe, to receive, to eat of Christ and be saved. And especially now as we prepare to witness and to celebrate baptism, how you, Father, have done this through your Son for Audrey Mooney, what a joy to see that you know those who are yours. You know long before we knew. You knew Audrey was yours. And you sent people to her with your word that she heard and believed and has been saved. So remind us, we pray of this every hour of every day, that we would feed upon Christ, feed upon his word, trust you in the midst of a surrounding famine, trust you from in the greater famine that is to come of judgment. Help us, we pray, Father, to abide in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.